Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Today, it is my great pleasure to be interviewing Scott Lincecum. He is an international trade attorney, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and a writer at the Dispatch. Scott is the king of Twitter. If you follow him, you'll read about his weird taste in candies, enjoying it or not his ranking of American pies, and learn about his misguided affection for early morning hours and daylight savings. I do not like daylight savings, but... You'll also get to see him fight day in and day out for free trade and for a free trade system, which is the topic of our podcast today. So welcome, Scott. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, not to start off on the wrong foot, but you you actually hate standard time. Uh, it's daylight savings gives you that extra light at night, which of course is really unnatural and unhealthy. But, you know, sorry, I, I didn't mean to start off on the wrong foot. <laughs> Well, so then I guess I hate standard time. That's right, right, right. Well, I feel like at least for me, it's more I don't like switching back and forth. Right. Yeah. I think I think most people have a very rational uh, hatred of the switch, particularly in the spring when you just lose an hour and you feel basically hungover for a couple of days. Um, it's better, of course, in the fall because you're actually gaining an hour, so you just sleep in a little bit. But the other thing that I, I think that there, then there's, so you have most people are, are quite sane and normal. They just don't like to switch. But then there are very serious and intense feelings among the warring clans at the periphery of the bell curve. <laughs> um, and I am on the morning light side um, just because I, well, a couple of reasons. I get up in the morning and go to the gym most mornings and I have a, a, a young child. And you combine those things and, and man, waking up, in the pitch black for months and months is, is just a miserable experience. Um, and in fact, you know, it got so bad right before the switch that I was driving my daughter to school in the dark, basically. So that, that's a pretty miserable experience, but I get it. Look, you know, having light in the evening so you children can go frolic and have cocktails and do whatever it is you do in the evening while the rest of us are still working. I get it. But, you know, um, for the sake of my, health, sanity, and for the, um, the economy, I, you know, I, I'm very much pro, pro standard time. I also, I think it's kind of good to have light in the morning because otherwise there, the amount of times where I've slept through my alarm for school and the only reason I wake up is because of the light. Yeah. And, and not, I know we're supposed to talk about trade, but this is far more important. Um, the, 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 there is actually science behind all of this. Our, our bodies are designed from, you know, millions of years of evolution to get up with the sun. And when you mess with the end, uh, standard time generally straddles uh, midnight. So in other words, it's, it's kind of the natural way the sun rises and sets. But um, so it, it is actually uh, healthier to get up with the sun and, and do that at the right time. But I get it. Most people like to go play golf after work or do whatever and, and standard of time. And in the winter, uh, affects that. Now, of course, that's really just uh, the fact that winter is a miserable soul crushing time in general. The days are very short, but people take it out on standard time. And, you know, here we are. So let's edge towards yeah, trade a little bit. Right, um, sure. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Yeah, I think so on trade, again, leaving, you know, important things like standard time aside. Uh, I think the most important thing I try to st- tell my students at Duke and elsewhere is that it's really critical to think of trade as not uh, transactions between countries, 
but instead transactions between individuals and millions of these little transactions that occur every day. Uh, and the reason that that's so important is that really helps to crystallize <clears throat> what free trade is and what protectionism is. Um, it is not uh, the United States and China trading. It is not some random, you know, large number that comes out once a month that reflects the trade balance. Instead, every day, you and I and hundreds of millions of other people uh, just simply voluntarily uh, purchase from, from hundreds of millions of others that just simply don't live in the United States. And it is that transaction that is trade. And free trade is simply keeping the government out of that transaction, whereas protectionism in some form, a tariff, a quota, a license, or whatever, just injects government in between uh, the consumer and uh, the seller. And so that, I think, again, as a when you try to think about trade, it's really critically important to understand that. Because when you hear that China is taking our jobs or that um, imports have harmed a certain community in Michigan or whatever, the reality is that's not correct. What happened is that you and I voluntarily chose to purchase from someone other than the person living in, again, in that Michigan place in Michigan or whatever, someone other than um, an American. And that choice, which we took voluntarily and presumably for our own benefit, is, is, the, is the actual trade involved. And once that crystallizes in your head, I think you, you have a better view about what, what, we are, what we argue about when we argue about trade policy. And trade is just so complicated. I mean, I've had to read so much and have so many conversations about just what is it? What? How does it work? What does this mean? What does that mean? And I don't know. It just takes a lot of work to understand it. So I think that is very important because especially because it impacts us every single day. Exactly. Everything we do kind of relates back to that in some way. If you use any sort of materials, if you eat food... <laughs> So, and yeah. the amount of work it takes to understand it just does not seem to, I don't know, it doesn't seem to correlate very well with the importance of it. Right. And and I think there's two reasons for, for that. One is it's really a testament to the hard work and ingenuity of uh American and global retailers, right? And and what I mean by that is that there, like you said, there is a ton that goes into getting my cell phone to me, right? Um, it is a massive undertaking in from the the mining of the materials to the production of the parts that occurs in all sorts of countries, including the United States, to the design that occurs probably in a place like Cupertino, California, where, where Apple is located, or maybe in Korea, where Samsung is. Um, then it, all of those things are shipped to an assembly point, which um, has for the last few years been in China, but that's chain, changing again. It's all then, of course, assembled, packaged, and shipped, sometimes customized, and then shipped um, to you. And that will then probably go through a couple intermediaries. It's probably going to get on a ship. It's probably not going to be on a plane. It'll probably be on a ship. And then it'll be unloaded and loaded onto a truck. And it has to go through customs and all that kind of stuff. And so because that process is so insanely seamless, I mean, we just click a button on Amazon or walk into uh, you know the local mall and buy. And that's the end of it, right? Um, and so we don't think about all of the stuff I just said that goes into that process. And that's really a testament to, like I said, kind of uh, global companies that that have worked very, very hard to make it as easy as possible to part uh, us from our money. Um, but the second reason is that I think the journalism in general does a really bad job of describing a lot of different trade concepts. And I don't just mean the, the, uh, the, you know, one I mentioned at the beginning of, of the show uh, about uh, trade occurring between individuals. Um, I mean, it really goes across categories. I mean, if you read, if you, even if you're reading the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or all sorts of great outlets, it is very, very likely that their discussion of trade will be butchered 
Um, it's and and this is not an insult. I don't. I hope to to the journalists who cover these things. It's just because they take shortcuts and how this all works. You end up with stories that really don't give you a good idea of what's actually going on. And you know, the trade deficit is a really great example of that. It's reported every month as just again, you know, several hundred million dollars, usually in the negative because we run trade deficits here in the United States. Without very with with very little indication of what drives those trade balances and what they mean and the rest, and because of that, um, the casual observer just simply uh, doesn't quite doesn't doesn't get it. And then I would add, I think the third reason is a bit more nefarious, and that is that it really benefits politicians and protection people who want protection to to uh, obfuscate and to to again to get away from that core truth about what's going on and that's again why you hear these these things like Chinese the China is taking our jobs um, and again trying to ignore that that really is is not the case it is far more about American consumers your neighbor my neighbor uh, voluntarily purchasing, uh, goods from other countries, whether it's China or Vietnam or wherever, and oftentimes not even knowing uh, uh, where where the origin, the country of origin is. So, I mean, we're already here. Let's dive right into kind of what how trade looks kind of at a global level. So in the US, the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate trade between states and countries and all that stuff. That includes the power to impose tariffs. Right. And since like the beginning, Congress has delegated some of that power to the president. And um, I read in, what's it called? In the Congressional Research Service Report, complicated name a little bit, that tariffs are imposed within the context of a rules-based global trading system, yeah. which effectively started in 1947. So can you explain what that means and what international organizations are a part of that system and how does the system hold itself together? Sure. So um, backing up a bit, um, I think it's, again, you know, starting from, from the beginning of sorts, not to get too biblical on you. Um, but, <laughs> but again, people were trading before nation states existed. Um, you know, Vikings and the rest, there was a lot of trade going on. Um, but, you know, the creation of the modern nation state was really where tariffs started getting thrown around. Um, in the United States... Um, and of course, tariffs kind of being the artificial, again, government kind of inserting itself into those kind of natural transactions. Um, so in the United States, like you said, Congress has the authority, but I would correct one thing. And that is that for the first about a hundred plus years of the United States, uh, existence. So from the about, you know, 1776 to about 19, uh, 10, 1920 or so, um, Congress actually had sole authority over tariff policy and Congress really did implement most tariff policy. There really weren't trade agreements. There really wasn't much of anything. Instead, Congress would just get together every once in a while and pa pass a tariff bill. And those things, unsurprisingly, ended up being very corrupt. Um, that uh, essentially uh, domestic companies would buy tariff protection. Um, and it was, there's a lot of great history on this. For those who care, I wrote a paper in 2017 um, looking into kind of the history of American protectionism. Um, and it was only after uh, the uh, Smoot-Hawley tariffs and the Great Depression did Congress go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We might we really can't be trusted with this. So let's start delegating our tariff powers to the one person in the government who has a truly national constituency. Because if you have a national constituency, it's, it's, it's less likely that you're going to be uh, influenced by very discreet kind of domestic, you know, local corporations and businesses that want protection. So that's when they started delegating uh, their authority to the president. And that part of that authority was the ability to enter into trade agreements. Because the president, of course, had uh, a power to negotiate with foreign nations under Article Two of the Constitution. But because Congress had trade authority, tariff authority, um, there were trade agreements, the president really wasn't allowed to just simply go ahead and negotiate tariff rates and stuff. So Congress and the president got together and they and they made a deal that the president could go out and negotiate trade agreements as long as Congress got a final say 
in approving or denying those trade agreements. And that became what was called fast track trade authority. It's now called trade promotion authority. So the first really huge agreement that that uh, the president went out and nego- negotiated was the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947. And this agreement resulted uh, from World War II. So uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hall, who in the Roosevelt administration, and uh, his counterpart in the in in England um, realized that one of the big uh, motivators for both World War One and World War II were trading blocks and protectionism. So it's essentially Germany and the Ottoman Empire and the rest, they got together and they created these little trading block. And then, you know, England and the United States and others, they got together and they had a trading block. And then because that nobody traded together, there was um, a, more of an incentive or at least less of a disincentive to go to war. So they thought that by kind of binding countries together and by creating a a non-discriminatory rules-based system where governments could not simply willy-nilly change tariff rates and create these trading blocks and do all that kind of stuff, um, they might be able to to foment uh, peace, that they could avoid war. And so the GATT was really a, a foreign policy instrument. These were not hardcore economic free traders. They weren't, you know, spouting Hayek every day. Um, and uh, that GATT, though, did result in the lowering of tariff rates over time as governments realized that it was in their interests to follow the rules and to lower trade barriers so they could have barriers in other countries lowered, this kind of reciprocal process, we call it. And at the same time, they realized it was in their interest to follow the rules. And the main rules in the GATT, like I said, were non-discrimination. So they will treat all countries, all imports from all countries the same, and they will not benefit, they will not, um, benefit their own domestic industries at the expense of foreign uh, competitors. So very kind of just level playing field for everybody. So after years and decades, uh, the GATT was highly successful in lowering trade barriers. Uh, average global tariffs went from, you know, around 40% in the 1940s, all the way down to, you know, 10% into the 90s. Um, then in the 90s, uh, everybody got back together and they decided that, look, the GATT needed updating. The GATT didn't cover services. It didn't cover all sorts of other things. So they, they and, and the GATT had a really weak dispute settlement system that simply um, did not really hold countries' feet to the fire when when they violated the the GATT's rules. So they they negotiated the World Trade Organization agreements, and that created the modern global trading system in 1995. And it's basically what we have today. And what the WTO is, is a basic set of the rules of the road for global trade. It is a small organization. It's only about 600 people work there. Uh, it is entirely member driven. There is no WTO police force. There is just a little secretariat that kind of manages things. And the members themselves are the ones that police each other. And they do that through, again, the dispute settlement system. So that's the, the, the first prong of the WTO is the rules. The second prong is the dispute settlement system. The third prong is a negotiating mechanism where the WTO allows countries to get together and negotiate new rules. Um, they haven't been very successful in that, but there have been a few agreements completed since the 90s. And then the last thing the WTO, the WTO does, and I think it's it's an unheralded part of the WTO, is that it's an, uh, a really great source of information. If you want to find out anything about a country's trading system and their economic system, you can go to the WTO, you can pull up their trade policy report, you can get everything you'd ever want to know. Um, you, they Members also file disclosures on subsidies, on tariffs, and the rest. And it's a really very useful uh, resource for people who are interested in this kind of stuff. Where do free trade agreements, either bilateral or multilateral, fit into this? Right. So, so the WTO is the only multilateral agreement, which essentially means all the countries. There's about 165 members. There are only a few countries outside of it, Iran and North Korea, for example. Um, although Iran was trying to get in for a little while, and that, of course, went by the wayside. Um, Outside of that, uh, there are regional or bilateral free trade agreements. That's something like NAFTA, for example. 
And what those agreements are, basically, member governments get together and they go, okay, look, we have basic liberalization commitments under the WTO, but we want to liberalize further with certain countries. And so um, what we want to do is we maybe our tariff rates are at 5%. We want to go all the way to zero, but we don't want to do it for everybody. We want to do it with um, for just a select group of countries um, with whom we trade a lot. It's supposed to be uh, regional agreements, so you know your neighbors. And so the WTO allows for that. And then we and the United States has uh, about a dozen or so free trade agreements with other countries. Uh, NAFTA, Korea, U.S. Korea FTA is another one. And the idea there is that it's more liberalization. It's never less. You're not going to be locking out any uh, any countries. You're not going to be raising tariffs. You're just going to be uh, lowering them even further. And that uh, promotes additional liberalization. Studies show generally that FTAs, which are messy like any sort of legislation, uh, still have resulted in a pretty substantial reduction of foreign trade barriers. The United States trade barriers were already pretty low, but uh, our trading partners, our FTA partners, has, has lowered them even further. And then the last little bit of kind of trade law is what happens unilaterally. So the United States can still impose tariffs and other types of trade restrictions under various laws that exist solely under U.S. law. Um, our anti-dumping and countervailing duty system, that's kind of the, the primary one that we use, but you can also have sanctions and the rest. Now, we can't just do those willy-nilly. Those are still subject to WTO rules and WTO dispute settlement, but the mechanism for initially imposing them is a purely unilateral thing. The United States just does it, um, or other or China just does it, and then you know you can argue about it later. So tariffs and other trade barriers, as you mentioned, used to be very high, but with rare exceptions, they dropped considerably low before Trump became president. Can you give us a history of how and why tariffs were cut so dramatically since World War II, and why do you think it's so important? Yeah, I think, again, it goes back to Smoot-Hawley to start. So tariffs were pretty high and pretty corrupt in the 1800s. Um, finally, you had this massive tariff bill right before the Great Depression, or actually right during the beginning of the Great Depression, uh, called the Smoot-Hawley Bill. For anybody who's watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off, it's you know, a famous part of, of that old uh, moon movie. Um, and Smoot-Hawley raised those dramatically. And the economic impact was substantial. It didn't cause the Great Depression, but the general consensus is that it it deepened and prolonged it. And it was after Smoot-Hawley um, and with the rise of, of uh, free market thinkers, again, like Hayek and others, um, where people started to rethink whether tariffs were a good idea economically in terms of protecting domestic industries, in terms of saving jobs and the rest. And at the same time, again, we had the GATT coming along. And and it was understood that politically, lowering tariffs was really, really hard for politicians because uh, protectionism has very clear uh uh, benefits. You're going to benefit, for example, the, a steel company, but it's going to have very diffuse and hidden costs. You know, you and I might pay an extra five cents for a toaster oven or whatever. Um, because of that, the, there's a lot of political momentum for protectionism, and it's very difficult for politicians to buck that. So what they thought is, look, if we create these reciprocal trading agreements where we trade our tariff reductions for other countries' tariff reductions, we can we can overcome the political obstacles that are out there. So even though we know the economics, we can't overcome the politics. So the reciprocal trade agreements help us overcome the politics. And they lock us into those commitments because if we uh, renege on a tariff commitment, then the other country can retaliate by reneging on its tariff commitments. So that actually kind of ties politicians' hands. So, so it's pretty cool that, that here you have government officials willingly tying their own hands, essentially saying, we can't be trusted with this power. So we're going to, we're going to uh, go ahead and bind ourselves. And that's, that, uh, those two things, that economics and those agreements, were really uh, a driver of trade liberalization in uh, after about you know 1947. Uh, now that said, 
<clears throat> I'd be remiss not to mention that, that there were countries out there, uh, New Zealand, South Korea, and others that realized that, look, Trade liberalization is good in and of itself. We don't need to wait for other countries to liberalize for us to liberalize. We, we should do that on our own. And so several countries have uh, unilaterally liberalized their trading regimes, not entirely, not um, as much as they have through the GATT or through trade agreements, but they have. And in fact, a great example is Canada, just about 10 years ago, uh, really significantly lowered uh, its tariffs on uh, industrial input, so stuff that Canadian manufacturers needed to make other stuff. And so that's a really nice example of countries not simply waiting around for a trade agreement. They just wanted, uh, the Canadian government simply wanted to do that, and they went ahead and did it. And it has benefited uh, the, the economy and those manufacturers. That's so cool. In the 90s, in a paper for MIT, economist P Paul Krugman explained that, quote, if economists ruled the world, there would be no need for a world trade organization. The economist's case for free trade is essentially a unilateral case. That is, it says that if a country serves its own purposes by pursuing free trade regardless of what other countries may, may do, end quote. That sounds kind of like what you were talking about and also like something Adam Smith would say. So can you kind of go further into that and explain what the statement means? Yeah, sure. So Krugman was really getting at at what I what I was just talking about, and that is that um, the the economic case for free trade is pretty darn ironclad. Um, we now have a couple hundred years of economic experience, particularly in the United States, and it shows a couple things. One that protectionism, tariffs, quotas, and the rest imposes really high economic costs especially in comparison to any potential benefits that you might get in terms of, for example, saving manufacturing jobs. Um, the, the studies that I've surveyed from, from all sorts of uh, different periods show that, uh, you know, you're looking at something like uh, $600,000 to $900,000 in cost for consumers to save a single job uh, in the manufacturing sector at issue, and that's every year. So it's hundreds of thousands of dollars every year in consumer costs to save a job. And the reason for that is that tariffs, and I won't get too wonky here, but they um, are just highly, highly inefficient. Um, not only do is it, tariffs are a tax, of course, and the government gets some tax revenue, but there's also this thing called deadweight loss. And deadweight loss is essentially just uh, lost uh, wealth, lost um, benefits uh, in terms for consumers that, that are not uh, obtained by producers, right? Because when you impose a tariff, you benefit a producer, you hurt a consumer, but you end up hurting the consumer a lot more than you benefit the producer, even if you throw in the government tariff revenue as well. And that delta, that difference is the deadweight loss. So like I, so again, you look at it and tariffs are highly, highly costly, but there's, but it gets worse. There's also a ton of research that shows that tariffs really are uh, very bad at actually revitalizing the industry at issue, at saving the jobs over the long term. And what you see is that in study after study, in case after case, the protected company uh, either ends up going out of business anyway, the jobs end up disappearing anyway, or they go back to the government for more help when the tariff protection is lifted. So in other words, the tariff protection did not make them a uh, a lean and mean and competitive entity. They instead just kind of became dependent on government help. Um, and that, of course, makes sense, right? If, if For those who are listening and, and remember what the auto sector looked like in the 1980s, or at least Google it, you can look at how bad cars were in the 1980s. Um, you know, American car companies that time had very little incentive to innovate. They didn't really care about, you know, making a better car. They just wanted to make money and they had a protected market to do that. And then Japan came along and really started putting the screws to the big three. And all of a sudden, American cars started getting better. And today we have competition from all over the world. And that competition has really uh, 
made American cars pretty decent again. Um, something that when I was a little kid, uh, I never would have imagined. And, and so going back to the point, you know, you, you have not only those high costs, but also a lot of failed objectives that protectionist just isn't very good at that. And then finally, you have all that corruption I mentioned. Um, again, there's a lot of historical and economic evidence of tariffs kind of fostering political dysfunction, we call it. So because of that, um, you, if you look at the surveys of economists uh, over the years, um, and Chicago's uh, IGM survey does, does these every once in a while, you'll find that there's really no issue on which more economists agree, regardless of their leanings, lefty, righty, moderate, whatever, there's no issue on which they agree more than trade and free trade. So if economists ruled the world, we'd have unilateral free trade. Uh, and, and, you know, the occasional protection here and there for potential national security reasons, right? You know, you don't want to be selling nukes to Iran, something like that, right? Um, but that's definitely not what we have. And the reason for that is that political dynamic I mentioned. And that is that uh, free trade will and import competition will impose uh, direct and, and tangible uh, harms or uh, on specific actors, so specific jobs will be threatened by import competition. Um, by contrast, you and I benefit in very discreet and invisible ways. Um, you and I don't see that competition I mentioned, at least not at the moment. You might see it in retrospect. And because of that political dynamic and because protectionism provides the exact opposite, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, it is a very politically intoxicating policy. And that's why you need, as Krugman wrote, trade agreements. You need trade agreements to tie the hands of politicians and essentially force them to accept the economic consensus and provide really uh, pain, politically painful penalties if they renege on that. And those penalties, again, are the loss of export markets for American soybeans or automobiles or whatever. Um, and that has created a system that up until recently has done pretty well. We talked a fair bit about tariffs, and you also mentioned the U.S.'s anti-dumping rules. Can you walk us through some of the trade barriers that we have, and can you give us an idea of how many there are and how they work? Sure. So uh, the, contrary to popular belief, the United States is not some sort of free trade paradise. Um, we have low average tariffs, but we have high tariff peaks in certain areas. So before we even get to the dumping stuff, um, it's important to note that we still have 25% tariffs on pickup trucks, for example. We have very high barriers uh, to sugar and to um, other certain other agricultural products. Um, but beyond that, we have a whole legal regime of other trade barriers, um, the most common of which is our trade remedy system. And that is anti-dumping and countervailing duties and to a lesser extent safeguards. These measures allow companies to petition the government for import protection, essentially saying <clears throat> that um, other countries, other companies are cheating. And because they are cheating, they and because this is unfair, the government needs to impose duties on those products in order to give um, the petitioning American company um, a level playing field. Now, the reality, as you probably guess, is that those laws really don't discipline the things they claim to discipline, um, and in fact have been corrupted over the years by the political process. And that has um, uh, allowed for the imposition of very high duties on hundreds of different products um, and the creation of a kind of a cottage industry of, of giving protection, uh, particularly to the steel industry, but to a lot of other countries as well, or sorry, companies as well. Um, we have about 500 of those in place. Now, outside of that, we also have uh, quotas in a few places. I mentioned sugar, so sugar quotas, um, and there's some others for certain textiles and, and uh, other products. We have um, uh, intellectual property restrictions um, where a, a, a company can petition the government and say that somebody is stealing its intellectual property and they have to block imports of those infringing products. We call those Section 337. We have national security-related measures. Um, President Trump imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum under Section 232 of the U.S. of U.S. law. That's a national security measure. 
Um, and so this web of different restrictions um, creates uh, a different picture of the United States. And independent analyses have shown that the United States is actually one of the most frequent users of these non-tariff measures to restrict trade. Um, and then finally, you know, I would say another really important one is subsidies. Um, now, how you would think, well, how is a subsidy, you know, the government basically giving somebody money, how is that a, a trade barrier? Well, the way it's a trade barrier is that it lowers the company's cost of competing. And by doing that, it makes it more difficult for foreign companies to compete in the US market. So for example, if I get a million dollars from the company from the government and I can sell my widget now at uh, $10 instead of $15 a widget, well, uh, another company simply can't compete against that subsidized price and that acts as a non-tariff barrier. So we have all sorts of non-tariff barriers uh, making the United States one of the more uh, protectionist countries in the world and in, in, by that metric. That is a whole lot of trade barriers. That's kind of, I mean, I knew that we had a lot, but I did not think that it was that, that much, which explains a lot of the reason why it seems to be your life work <laughs> to get us to lower tariffs and trade barriers. Because I don't know, I just never really realized the full extent of that, which is insane. And yeah. I mean, and we don't notice it. That's the other thing. You know, again, the, the real uphill climb for people who are trying to, to advocate for free trade is that all of these rules I just mentioned are hidden behind a wall of law and regulation. And because it doesn't show up on the receipt, like a sales tax, uh, it's really hard for Americans to even notice. Um, and quite frankly, trade policy, the United States is, is one of the least trade dependent countries in the world. Um, and because of that, you know, it's funny, you think of when you listen to politicians, you think that we were one of the most globalized countries in the world. But it's not true. Um, you know, trade as a share of American GDP is actually quite low if you compare us to, say, Germany, South Korea or others. And because of that, the trade barriers that are in place, while they're painful and stupid and the rest, aren't enough to collapse the economy. They're, they're just a drag. They're not, um, they're not catastrophic. And when you combine all that together, it really creates um, a really uh, almost impenetrable uh, barrier to reform. And I mean, it must be harder, especially in the past few years, because the president is definitely not a free trader. He's kind of a proud protectionist. So I kind of want to go through some of the arguments that we hear from people that prefer higher tariffs and trade barriers. So um, some people like Trump believe that imports are bad and that exports are good. He isn't alone in that. And as you've explained, we have a lot of policies that are meant to reduce imports and many policies that are meant to prop up exports. So what do you say to that? And how do you kind of talk your way through that? <laughs> right. Well, that's just what we call mercantilism. Um, and mercantilism is, it makes sense on its surface until you realize that um, kind of a classic Adam Smith point is that the the our as economic actors, our goal is to consume things, not to produce them. Um, and and what I mean by that is that you know if I produce a bunch of widgets um, and sell them all, well that's fine. But I all I have is dollars. All I have is pieces of paper. Um, I can't eat those. I can't. I can't watch TV with them. I, I can basically just stack them and count them like Scrooge McDuck, right? Um, instead, what I want at the end of the day is to get other stuff with those dollars. And so, again, at the end result is to consume, to have the TV, to go on a vacation, to do all those types of things. Well, so that is the import side, that consumption. We imports are the things we want. Um, exports are the things we have to do kind of begrudgingly to get the things we want. And so the, the goal of policy 
should not be maximizing exports and minimizing imports. It should be really allowing people to work doing whether it's exporting or domestic production or working in services or whatever, and then allowing us to consume uh, those, those, those imports or domestic production as well, and just getting out of the way and letting people do that. And so that is just totally lost on the mercantilist. The mercantilist like Trump says, no, we want to just produce, 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 um, and never consume. Um, well, that, you know, if, if that were the case, we'd have the best economy in the world by just making tons of stuff and then going and dumping it in the ocean. Um, that's obviously not the goal. The goal is at the end of the day to just make some money um, and then to buy imports or buy uh, other things to consume them. So, I mean, you mentioned trade deficits earlier and Trump likes to mention trade deficits a lot. And so my next kind of question is like, is the trade deficit as big of a problem as people and Trump especially claim that it is? Right. And so the the short answer is no. Um, but let's get a little more complicated. Um, the The first thing to understand is that the trade deficit, trade balance, is dictated not by trade policy. And I know that's kind of a mind-blowing thought. But the fact is that trade balances are, are the, the result of very large kind of macroeconomic forces, namely savings and consumption rates in the United States and around the world. Because we consume more than we save, uh, we have to import some of that consumption and that is will result in a trade deficit, basically. Other countries have the opposite issue. They save more than they invest and consume. They run trade surpluses. And it is that relative savings and investment from different countries that really dictates our trade balances. So from a purely trade policy perspective, the trade deficit is pretty much meaningless. Um, now, can a trade deficit occasionally be a, an indicator of something else potentially going wrong? Sure. Um, back in the 2000s, uh, China was having really massive trade surpluses, and those types of global imbalances uh, could potentially be a problem. But it's not the it's not the imbalance itself that's the problem. It's the forces driving those imbalances, and uh, that goes the same for the, the trade deficit. Um, but for the United States, there's an extra reason why the trade deficit doesn't matter, and that's because of the U.S. dollar. So, because the dollar is our reserve currency, or a the world's reserve currency. Meaning people want dollars, uh, they use dollars in their transactions, they buy dollars when there's a potential recession or they start getting worried. Because of that, um, those capital inflows, we are that drives the trade balance. Now, how does that work? Well, the fact is that as long as the, the flip side of a trade deficit is a capital account surplus, these are always going to match. If you have a trade surplus, you're going to have a capital account deficit. You're going to have actual more dollars going out of your country, more of your currency going out of your country. Because these always have to balance, and because you have people who want dollars and who are buying dollars, buying U.S. debt, that is going to inevitably create a trade deficit. Again, because they have to be mirror images of each other. Um, but it also means that the United States is a very attractive place to invest. And it's not just buying debt or buying paper dollars. It's people investing in uh, manufacturing you know, or land or whatever. Again, all of that will drive the trade balance. And so because of that, again, the trade balance really just is not something to get worked up about. And the it's in, in fact, given the structure of the US economy that I just said, there's actually a strong correlation between an expanding trade deficit in the United States and a growing US economy. In other words, if the US economy's uh, growth accelerates, then the trade deficit will be getting bigger as well. So these two things are actually pretty connected. So a rising trade deficit, when you see that, you think, oh, the US economy must do, be doing pretty well. Are trade wars good and easy to win? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, of course not. So the, the I think the primary fallacy here 
um, is that this really assumes a world in which everything is made in one place. Um, in, in other words, your supply chain is vertical. So a company like Apple designs in California and produces in Texas and, and does everything here in the United States. Um, in that very simplistic formula, tariffs might, if you have the largest consumer economy in the world, like the United States still does, at least for you know a little while longer until China overtakes, um, the because that you could think oh well then we can dictate other countries trade and economic behavior because we're the number one consumer and now you hear that a lot so the trade war is very good and easy to win the the reality though is quite different the fact is that about half of everything we import is stuff that american manufacturers need to uh make other stuff so capital goods equipment you know energy and the rest and so that's the first problem. So when you impose tariffs and start trade wars, your tariffs actually hurt your own manufacturers. The second problem is that those same manufacturers and farmers and service providers and the rest also sell abroad. And protectionism at home inevitably leads to retaliation abroad. Uh, politicians in foreign countries, they care more about their own domestic politics than they do about what Trump says or does. And they are under tremendous pressure to retaliate because, of course, nobody likes to be pushed around, particularly not by Donald Trump. So retaliation causes a, an extra pain, a second pain, um, and against American exports. And this is, of course, exactly what happened. The, the third problem is uncertainty. So markets like consistency and predictability, protectionism being a political action, trade wars being completely erratic and at the subject to the whims of, of politicians, particularly ones that have a tweeting obsession, um, that creates uncertainty in the market and that discourages investment. So if you have, for example, let's say you're a Canadian businessman, you want to uh, build a plant in the United States, um, you're about to put drop oh, $100 million on that plant. But next thing you know, Donald Trump is saying that he's going to blow up NAFTA um, if he doesn't get his way, or he's imposing national security tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum and the Canadians are retaliating. Well, all of a sudden you're going to think, you know, probably not going to make that investment. And again, we've seen in the academic literature a significant hit to investment uh, because of the uncertainty raised by the trade wars. So you, you know, you combine it all together and it's it's ended up being, you know, quite a mess and certainly not good or easy to win. I kind of want to wrap the conversation about trade by asking what is in your opinion, the strongest exception to unilateral free trade, if there is one? Yeah, I think the only legitimate exception is national security. Um, that, again, you know, using a very simple example, uh, it is perfectly legitimate, I think, for the U.S. government to uh, prevent the sale of nuclear warheads to North Korea. Uh, or uh, to prevent the importation of chemical weapons uh, uh, from from uh, Iran or whatever, um, and that national security argument I think is is pretty is pretty sound in theory. In practice, though, it's not nukes and chemical weapons. We end up abusing the national security exception. And the next thing you know, you have tariffs on all steel products, um, like rebar that's used in construction, for example. Things that have absolutely no national security nexus. Um, we also see in other types of national security protectionism, like the Jones Act, which restricts shipping to American-made ships, um, that uh, it actually ends up hurting national security by degrading, in the Jones Act example, the fleet. I mentioned making companies less innovative and less competitive. So the national security exception, while I think it's valid in theory, and I think there are some very narrow examples of where it can actually apply, um, it, it really, we still need to be very skeptical because of that long history of abuse and failure. And it sounds so good, too. Right. Like, it sounds, okay, national security, we really don't want North Korea to like blow us up because right. we sold them something. But I mean, when you think about the consequences that you don't even see the direct correlation upon first glance, but then you see steel 
And then you actually look at, I don't know, it's just kind of crazy to see how deep the consequences of something like that can run. Right. And nobody's gaming that out. When you, when they say, oh, we have to protect our steel industry because we need steel, that then their brain shuts off and they don't think about, well, what's the, how much steel do we actually need? First of all, um, for example, the Department of Defense said we only needed about 3% of total domestic production for, for the, for the military. Um, so that's the first problem. But then the second problem is you think, well, does this actually do tariffs and protectionism? Will that actually boost the steel industry? And guess what? Steel industry is actually struggling. Um, turns out a lot of steel makers rely on imported uh, steel slab um, and uh, that they need export markets. And there's that investment uncertainty. So all of that really unravels the case for national security protectionism, except on extremely narrow and very clear grounds. So what is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Ah, well, I, I will leave, um, I'll leave, uh, trade sort of, and I'll go more to, but I'll stick in the economic realm. I fully admit that in the Great Recession era, I was far, far more skeptical of um, uh, very easy money and Fed policy than I am today. Um, I I think I was, and I, I think I was just totally wrong, that, you know, back, back in 2007 and 2008, um, I really thought that, you know, uh, all of the easy money and quantitative easing and the rest um, were going to lead to pretty substantial inflation based on a very kind of classical model of, of uh, you know, economics and monetary policy. And that, of course, proved totally incorrect. Um, inflation has been very subdued. And I've now become a pretty big fan of easy money in general. I think that, you know, I that uh, and and I think you've you've interviewed some others on this, so I won't you know go too much into the weeds. But the you know I think that really um, you know we can be far we can run a lot hotter than we think we could uh, than we thought we could even just a decade ago, and and that seems uh, pretty pretty clear to me at this point. Interesting response. I I don't know. I love hearing the answer to this question. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I'm so sorry I kept you so long with my like gajillion questions. No worries. So many more. But I've learned so much and I bet my listeners, no, not even I bet, I know my listeners have also, and I know that we only really scratch the surface. But I mean, so many more episodes of my podcast that I can dedicate to this subject. So there's also that. And I really, really recommend to all of my listeners that you follow Scott on Twitter and read his work. You'll learn a lot and you'll be very, very entertained. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here.